please join me in uh, welcome, giving a warm welcome to Roger Wallinger. Okay, Thomas, well, thank you so much for that uh, kind uh, introduction and way and summarizing my work. Uh, Thomas has already given you the kernel of the presentation that you're going to hear, but hopefully there won't be too much uh, repetition. So this was a paper uh, I really hadn't, hadn't planned to write. Uh, uh, I, uh, uh, it, it, the, the seeds obviously were laid uh, on uh, November uh, 8th. Uh, but uh, on November 8th, 9th, and the, and the weeks that followed, I was uh, in the process. Are you pointing something at me? Is, that, is it okay if we Facebook live? Yeah, sure. I thought there was a message you were trying to send me. Okay, sorry. So uh, uh, in the weeks that immediate weeks that followed, uh, along with Thomas and uh, another colleague, I was in the process of trying to finish a book manuscript, and as I was in the very last throes of doing so, I was saying to myself, once this is done, I need a writing vacation. Uh, and uh, of course, I doubted whether I was really able to, would be able to implement that plan. Uh, and sure enough, sometime in mid-December, I received an invitation from the graduate students at the University of Chicago, sociology graduate students at the University of Chicago, who hold an annual uh, conference. They asked whether I'd be willing to come and give a lecture. And I felt, well, for this audience, uh, I really shouldn't give a research talk. I really ought to challenge myself and see, do I have something to say about the issue of the moment? After all, uh, I've been working on immigration for a long time. When I got started, it was a relatively modest phenomenon. It was a peripheral area in scholarship. And of course, as we know, the scholarship is burgeoned, and the issue has come to the center of all of our political systems. So it seemed to me that if I've learned anything over the past almost 40 years, uh, it's time to demonstrate that uh, both to myself and possibly to the public. So that's how I came to, uh, to uh, write this paper. Uh, and the title changed a little bit from uh, when I proposed it. When I proposed it, it was uh, Immigration and the Election of Donald Trump, Why the Sociology of Migration Left Us Unprepared and Surprised. And then I realized as I went through it that I can't simply criticize other people for not having had enough foresight, but I needed to provide some answers of my own. So that's obviously what I'm going to try to do today. So we can begin at the beginning. Let's see. Okay. Uh, and uh, so this is the beginning. Uh, Donald Trump uh, rides down the escalator in Trump Tower. And really, amazingly enough, the very first words out of his mouth are, when Mexico sends his people, they're not sending their best, they're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, et cetera. Right? And of course, I mean, aside from uh, the uh, you know, incredibly uh, uh, aggressive um, uh, nature and tone of his words, I think what was particularly shocking and startling to political observers is that he was breaking with what the conventional wisdom was about the last election. That the last election, well, I mean, most of the, uh, the Republicans lost the majority in 2012 and 2008, in 2000 and 1996, 1992. And so the Republicans after 2012 thought, well, we need to figure out what is it that we're doing wrong. And in the autopsy report that the Republican Party commissioned, one of the conclusions was we can't engage in rhetoric like this. That we have to, the American electorate is changing in ways that are being propelled by immigration, is becoming increasingly diverse, and we need to find some way of attracting immigrant votes to uh, our leaders. So that, I think, was the assumption going in. 
Uh, and of course, right from the beginning, Trump breaks with it. And then uh, shortly thereafter, uh, he, he says how he's going to implement his plan and the notorious claim that he's going to build uh, a wall. And of course, as the campaign evolved, uh, his rallies would take the form uh, of uh, him saying, I'm going to build a wall, and the audience would respond, and Mexico will pay for it. Right? So these were themes that were at the center of the, uh, of the election. Uh, and uh, so uh, as I thought about this, uh, what, what of course struck me was my own field, that is the sociology of migration, uh, I think left us unprepared for this. Uh, and that then provided the, the motivation for the talk. So uh, what I'm going to do today is tell you, in a way, criticize my own field very, very briefly, tell you what, what it is that we've been thinking about, and then I'll try to tell you what it is that I think we've done wrong. Uh, and uh, Thomas, in a way, has already told you what the takeaway uh, point is, namely that international migration is an inherently political phenomenon, and politics, as we all know, is about conflict. And then I'm going to say something about the recent history of US immigration policy. And I'll I'm going to argue, as you can see here, that uh, policy essentially uh, took place in two stages. One, a period of expansion, uh, but expansion that uh, was not wanted by uh, the bulk of the American electorate. Uh, then a period of restriction, which indeed responded to the preferences of the public, but wasn't terribly liberal. And since then, a reactive cycle, uh, which has produced the stalemate. And I think the stalemate, in turn, set the stage for someone like Donald Trump, who could say, system is broken, I and I alone know how to fix it. Uh, and then at the very end, I've kind of tacked on a vote analysis. So the, I mean, I should have said at the beginning that this paper is not a research paper. It's really a thought piece. I've tried to see, could I make sense of this phenomenon that we've all lived through? Uh, then roughly five or six weeks ago, the American National Election Survey was released. So I've done some quick analysis to try to see uh, what indeed was the relationship between uh, uh, attitudes towards immigration and the decision to, to elect Donald Trump. All right, so let's start out with the sociology of migration. So if one looks at the sociology of migration, uh, what one sees essentially is a division of labor. Uh, and that is a division of labor uh, which conforms to the difference between place of origin and place of destination. So there are series of uh, approaches or perspectives that are essentially try to understand why is it that people leave and then a set of approaches that uh, are designed to ask, well, what happens once they get to the place of immigration? And so let me start out with why they leave. And, and here I think there are really two fundamental contributions. The first essentially is uh, kind of a social network approach. And there the argument is that the, uh, what makes immigration possible uh, is the fact that immigrants are able to use the one resource that they almost all have, namely one another. And so that they use uh, their ties to one another, the ties between pioneers and followers, to essentially solve the everyday problems associated with migration. How does migration get, how do you finance migration? How do you get oriented to a strange place? How does one find, uh, how does one find work? Uh, how is it that one learns the skills that will allow one to move ahead in this strange and very different place. So, and the argument essentially is that over time, immigrant networks become increasingly deeply implanted. As the settlers gain in their resources, they also gain in their capacity to help out 
uh, persons, their relatives, friends, townspeople in the country left behind. Uh, and so consequently, uh, the risks associated with migration diminish, the costs diminish, and therefore immigration develops a kind of self-feeding dynamic. The more immigration has taken place, the more will occur in the future. And of course, it's that dynamic, the ways in which the, social, the implantation of social resources, social networks, generates migration-relevant social capital that makes it very difficult for receiving countries to then put on the brakes and make migration stop. So then there is a, a related view, uh, and that is un, kind of known under the uh, label cumulative causation theory. And here the argument is that as immigration develops, it generates a series of changes that alter the original motiva motivations to leave. So uh, as an example of this, one of the things that immigrants do, paradoxically, is they invest in their home communities. Now, how do they invest? Well, very often they invest in the forms of remittance houses that some analysts have described as dream houses. And dream houses in the sense that essentially the immigrants are transplanting the architectural style, so a big house with many rooms, a division between private and public, that of course they've acquired in the country of destination. So in a way it's a, it's a, it's a paradoxical, almost poignant phenomenon because what the immigrants are doing is simultaneously demonstrating their attachment to the place of origin, but doing so in a way that reflects how much migration has changed. So why is that? What's the relevance of that for migration? Well, these houses, of course, are sending a signal that nobody can miss. Uh, look, I came from the same humbling, humble surroundings. I went to the strange country, and look at what that experience has allowed me to do. Now, so there's a, a signal, you know, go north, young man. Uh, and, uh, uh, but in addition, often immigrants will uh, use their investments in order to buy additional land, but since they're not there, uh, that additional land means that there's actually fewer demand, there's less demand for agricultural workers, so that, again, increases the impulse to leave. In the country of reception, the immigrants tend to concentrate in particular neighborhoods, and so in a way that reproduces, it, it, it transforms a strange environment for a into a familiar one, so it reduces the social and psychological costs associated with migration. So again, we get essentially the same message. That is to say, immigration puts the migration, generates a series of changes. It builds a social structure of migration that reduces the cost of migration, reduces the risks, and makes it increasingly difficult for states to control the movement of people. So that's the story in the sending side. And then the story in the Receiving side, most importantly, is concerned with, or we is under the label of assimilation or integration. Now, there's a great deal of debate in the literature. Does integration mean assimilation? And one could get into the details of that. But for the most, but as far as I'm concerned, these are essentially, uh, these are essentially uh, minimally cognate concepts. For the most part, they essentially overlap. So. Uh, to just an illustration of what it means, the National Academy of Sciences recently uh, released a report on the integration of immigrants, uh, and they described it as a process by which immigrant groups and host societies come to resemble one another. Now, you just read that sentence and you realize there's something wrong there, but I quoted them, I quoted them uh, correctly. 
And uh, assimilation has been defined in relatively similar ways. A kind of the now canonical book written by Richard Alba and Victor Neat called Remaking the American Mainstream. And they define assimilation as the process uh, whereby an ethnic difference, ethnic distinction, loses its, uh, loses its importance. And in their view, uh, assimilation is essentially a rational choice uh, phenomenon. That is, it's driven by immigrant search to improve their lives. In order to improve their lives, immigrants have to adapt to the circumstances that they encounter. That adaptation, in turn, produces greater convergence with the behavioral patterns, expectations, preferences of the people around them. And the result, therefore, well, and the result is that immigrants gain, they're, they're rewarded for their adaptation, those rewards, and produce further behavioral uh, and cultural changes. So you have a virtuous circle in which people may not be uh, searching for assimilation, but nonetheless, assimilation is the inevitable uh, result. Um, then, so, so these, of course, what's striking about these three perspectives is we haven't heard anything about the international nature of migration. We haven't heard anything, anything to suggest that there is a political dimension to this. The fourth influential perspective, although one I think that in retrospect will be seen more as a fad than a valuable contribution, is the, the, the concept of post-nationalism. And so here the idea is that uh, in contrast to uh, the mass migrations of the early 20th century when immigrants were expected to, uh, to acquire citizenship and needed to do so in or order to exercise full rights in a world in which the immigration receiving countries were signatories to various human rights conventions, it was sufficient for the immigrants to remain as denizens, that they didn't need citizenship they didn't need formal citizenship, they didn't need the passport in order to enjoy most of the rights and entitlements uh, of, of, uh, of the citizens in the countries in which they live. Okay, so then there's a fifth perspective, uh, now a fifth perspective of transnationalism, and so transnationalism uh, is the one perspective that uh, is in effect looking in both, looking across borders. And so, uh, I mean, the importance, I think, of this message is to remind researchers that immigrants are also emigrants, uh, that in a way we can think about immigration as a process of the internationalization of family networks, in part because of the selectivity of migration. So that means that immigration inherently generates ties that cut across borders and ties that persist for a variety of reasons. Now the core of the transnational art, transnationalist perspective was that uh, the maintenance of these ties was compatible with the expectations both of societies of origin and societies of destination. So the scholars who launched this point of view uh, contended that immigrants could enjoy full incorporation both in societies of uh, reception and societies of origin. Okay, so this is a very brief thumbnail sketch of what I think of the major perspectives in, in the sociology of migration. So, let's see, what am I doing? Okay, so what's the problem? Well, I mean, the, one th the, the first problem is, of course, that it's all about them, it's not about us. I mean, the assumption, we, we all know minimally from our own experience that, in fact, the presence of strangers is meaningful. People respond to the arrival of people from foreign places. Uh, and, of course, the immigrants are 
moving across national boundaries. Uh, and so inevitably, there is a role in this process for the action of states. So politics is essentially, uh, is, is a, it, with the exception of the kind of post-national perspective, politics is largely outside the principal perspectives that one finds in the sociology of migration. There is an internal contradiction, uh, and that is that uh, network theory is telling us that migration is propelled by the buildup of social capital, but assimilation or integration theory implicitly is telling us that uh, uh, the, that process is built up through the undermining of those, that social capital. So if, if indeed social capital is so important to the immigrants and such a vital component of the migration process, why is it that the process of integration, the process of assimilation leads to its, its weakening. But I think the crucial point, uh, the pru crucial source of weakness is simply that the political element is left out. After all, this is a world of states and border control is an inherent aspect of state sovereignty. Even if states didn't want to control movement over their, uh, uh, didn't want to control uh, movement over their borders, they'd really be forced to because this is a world in which every state is engaged in control. So any decision by a state to loosen control in a world in which all of its neighbors are controlling would mean that it would be likely to receive uh, a greater, significantly greater flow given the motivations to migrate. So if it's a, it is a, uh, a if control is political, then of course, it raises a series of political questions. Once one has decided, once one has, once the, the world moved away from the migration systems of the early 20th century in which, at least in the transatlantic sphere, essentially movement was uncontrolled, then every country had to face a series of interrelated political questions. The first question is how many? Uh, the second question is if one decides to restrict, well, uh, uh, what are the categories uh, according to which immigrants will be admitted? And last, what types of rights are going to be uh, accorded to different categories of migrants? And these, of course, are political questions. Uh, and like all political questions, these are issues that generate uh, conflict. So in a way, it should, should be no surprise that a fundamentally political phenomenon uh, generates political conflict. Now, uh, one, of the, one of the reasons why uh, it generates conflict uh, is because if one looks at the phenomena not uh, from the standpoint of the receiving societies, but if you, in a way, adopt the kind of transnational perspective, what, and you're kind of standing athwart the border looking both ways, what's clear is that on the one hand, international migration is driven by the search for the good life. What we know from uh, you know, a vast array of studies is migration is good for the migrants. So they're very rational deciding to leave poor countries and go to rich countries. Um, uh, and as a social network theory tells us, once put in motion, uh, migration has this self-feeding dynamic. But in a way, what that means is that migration is a process that integrates, this integrates receiving states into the world. So we can think, though most of the sociology of, most of the literature on the integration assumes that the scale of integration should be the country of origin. If we take a global perspective, it's clear that migration is 
a, an integrating force. Um, so it follows then that if migration is an integrating force, migration control is a process of international, uh, international uh, disintegration, that states have to find some way of resisting or controlling uh, the dynamics put in place by the arrival of different migration streams. Um, and last, that this conflict between uh, the, uh, the integration or the global integration produced by migration across borders and the disintegration or the efforts at disintegration produced by uh, policies aimed at migration control generates what I'm describing here as internal national disintegration. Uh, migration uh, clearly has a variety of different effects. Uh, all of the labor market research on, uh, on migration shows that, for the most part, the labor market impact of migration is a wash. Uh, the net, there's very little net gain or net loss. But what that means, of course, is that there are winners or losers. Migration has helped some people. It, it has negative effects on others. Uh, migration is unlike trade. I mean, we're all sitting with smartphones in our in our pockets, and sometimes those smartphones get us to do things we may not want to do, but we do have the capacity to turn them on or off. But migrants aren't smartphones. Migrants are people with the capacity to change society. So it's understandable that the, even if you know, the literature tells us that everything will work out rosily, it's understandable that uh, the residents of the, received, uh, of the receiving countries will react with some degree of apprehension to the arrival of people who indeed have the capacity to affect very significant change. Uh, so we know that those uncertainties about migration, the fact that migration yields negative effects of a variety of sorts, generates opposition to migration, but we also know that migration is wanted. Migration is wanted in part uh, because there are people who benefit from migration, most importantly, the migrants themselves, uh, uh, who want the further uh, reunification with their families. It benefits the employers of migration. And of course, migration is a phenomenon that's consistent with the values and preferences of those people who prefer a more open, more cosmopolitan world. And so consequently, migration uh, generates uh, the fact that it's both wanted and rejected means that it is a focus of, uh, of conflict. And what the sociology of migration, of emigration, tells us what these theories and perspectives on social networks and cumul cumulative causation imply is that it's inherently a process that is inherently difficult for states to control. This tension between states' inevitable efforts to try to disintegrate themselves from these pressures that lead to greater integration that produces, puts immigration at the center of the political debate in the United States as well as so many other wealthy democracies. So here I'm trying to explain why is it that we see immigration as a recurring uh, locus of conflict. And now what I want to explain is why did it emerge as the center of the American election of 2016. So one way of thinking about this is, I think, a clue to uh, the, uh, 
to understanding the volatility of migration as a political issue has to do with the paradox between the growth of migration on the one hand, which is very clearly shown in this graph. You can see uh, the growth both in the number of international migrants living in the West as well as the increase in their proportion of the total population and the views of the public, which by and large is opposed. So now, of course, opposition isn't uh, the same everywhere. I'm sorry, I couldn't find uh, internationally consistent statistics for Canada. This comes from the International Social Survey Program, in which Australia has participated, the United States, but not Canada. Uh, but uh, so obviously, opposition, the degree of opposition to uh, immigration is by no means uniform. Not really surprising to see the very high levels of opposition in the United Kingdom and France. It's instructive that opposition to immigration is not as great in the United States. But nonetheless, what we're seeing here, I mean, if one thinks about the contrast to this picture and that one, what we're seeing is there is actually no constituency for the transformation that Western industrialized societies have undergone. So I think it's that, what we, in order to understand the volatility of migration as a political issue, it's that contrast between uh, the rise of migration on the one hand and the underlying opposition on the other. And I think we do have to remember, of course, that there is a, a core consensus on the notion that borders need to be controlled. And so inevitably, then there are kind of the technical details of how to control them, but the public as a whole uh, shares the core, a core objective. So now, in thinking about this, I want to draw on a very influential article written by the political scientist Gary Freeman, which appeared in the International Migration Review a little over 20 years ago. And so he uh, was working with a political economy framework developed by James uh, Wilson. And he argued that we can understand uh, the development of, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of migration policy by uh, looking at the relationship, not surprisingly, between the who it is that bears the costs and who, who gains the benefits of migration. And his core, his core argument was that migration, migration politics typically emerges as a form, the growth of migration emerges as a form of client politics in which uh, mobilized groups that benefit from migration one way or, the no or another, the benefit might be economic, it might be political, it might be cultural, mobilized groups are able to exercise influence on the policy process, whereas the general public is absent from this issue uh, for a variety of different reasons. So on the one hand, he makes the argument that groups that benefit from immigration are highly mobilized and are able to exercise influence over the political process. And, and so those groups are what strike, and I'll come back to this, this uh, theme in a moment, these groups are usually political opposites. But when it comes to immigration, what we see is there is a coming together of left and right. Uh, and these are the beneficiaries, the groups that are essentially paying for the cost of immigration are not particularly attentive. Well, why are they not particularly attentive? They're, they're kind of, Freeman suggested two reasons. On the one hand, uh, most people are not terribly attentive to political matters. In general, uh, immigration uh, is uh, a development to which there is an underlying latent opposition, but usually it's not very salient in terms of uh, the electorate's political pre preoccupations. And most importantly, Freeman argued that 
opposition to immigration was affected or was inhibited by what he called the constrained discourse, or what he described at the time, this is the mid-1990s, as an anti-populist norm. And the key point I think that he was advancing, and here I do believe he's correct, is that a central difficulty for opposition to immigration is that inevitably slides into opposition to immigrants, right? And so when one, I mean, we see this in, in Trump's rhetoric, that, that the opposition to immigration almost inevitably slides into derogatory negative views about the characteristics of particular immigrant groups who are already part of the population. So uh, uh, Freeman's core hypothesis is that expansion takes place under these circumstances in, in which mobile, highly mobilized interest groups that benefit from migration for a variety of different reasons are able to exercise influence on the policy making process and the broader public is quiet, not because it likes it, but because politi the politicians who might benefit from mobilizing this constituency themselves feel constrained. Now, so I think the argument that I'm making is that Freeman indeed accurately captures a particular moment in the development of US migration policy. And these are, this is the moment uh, that takes place in the 1980s, beginning of the 1990s. And so I'll, I'll get to that in a moment, but I want to just come back to, to the point I made earlier, namely that one of, the, one of the salient characteristics, certainly of the politics of US immigration policy is that immigration historically has turned out to be an issue that produces a fundamental cleavage within the right and within the left and tends to uh, create two opposing groups, one of which we can characterize as immigrationists and the other as restrictionists. In both cases, these are coalitions that bring together right and left. And for my purposes today, what I'm most interested in is the, co the immigrationist coalition that you find on the left and so what we see here are two very different types of mobilized interest groups. On the one hand, business, which of course has a consistent interest in increasing its access to the global labor supply, but is not particularly concerned about the conditions or the rights that those workers from elsewhere might enjoy. In some cases, for example, when it comes to high-skilled workers, being more willing to allow for higher levels of rights, but when it comes to agricultural workers, preferring a system in which uh, migrants have very few rights and very limited capacity to move from job to an, one job to another. So there you have a preference for more admissions, a, however, an aversion to greater rights. The left wing of the immigrations coalition agrees there should be more immigrants, but given its constituent elements, that is to say human rights groups, cosmopolitans, principled liberals, and of course ethnic advocacy groups, the preference is for greater rights, but also for different types of immigrants. So as the business-oriented wing of the kind of immigrations coalition is concerned about increasing movement for people with scarce skills, the left wing is concerned about family reunification and secondarily rights or admissions for refugees. So there is a point of convergence, but these are fragile, these are fragile uh, policy coalitions. All right. These coalitions come together successfully in two moments in, uh, at the close of the 1980s. And, and so there are two, uh, there are two very 
significant pieces of legislation that are passed first in 1986 and then in 1990. And these, these are two different but closely related pieces of legislation because they reflect the two different aspects of US immigration policy. That, that we can distinguish between policies that we could describe as being oriented towards the front door, that is to say the admission of legal immigrants, whether as temporary or permanent workers, whether family reunification, whether relatives, whether refugees rather, and the politics of the back door, that is policies that are oriented towards the admission, the entry of, uh, uh, of labor migrants who are uh, moving into US territory uh, without being controlled. And, and I think if we think about US migration, backdoor migration policy for much of the post-war period, what we see is that the official policy is unauthorized immigrants are unwelcome and unwanted, but the tacit policy is that, of course, they're accepted. Indeed, this was enshrined in law. So so-called Texas Proviso, which was uh, enacted in, in 1951, which simultaneously prohibited unauthorized immigrants from accepting employment, but allowed employers to hire those very same immigrants. So the initial, uh, the, the initial uh, um, action uh, was then to uh, allow for uh, the legalization of what was then a undocumented population of roughly four million people. And this, the Act, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, did it via two different amnesties, a word that was acceptable then, not acceptable now, one of which uh, was oriented towards longer term residents, and the other one of which was oriented towards very recent arrivals, mainly working in agriculture. So one can see the direct influence of this strange coalition between uh, ethnic advocates, humanitarians on the one hand, so that's the general amnesty, and then business groups on the other. Uh, and so here I've just tried to identify what were the salient components of this piece of legislation, which seemingly contained expansionary and restrictionary measures. So the expansionary measures were the two different forms of amnesty. The restrictionary, restrictionist uh, measures, most importantly, were, were entailed a prohibition, first time, the prohibition on the employment of unauthorized immigrants, uh, and then some other provision, and then another crucial kind of expansionary provision, which, uh, which precluded the use of a universal identification card. So in effect, what this Immigration Reform and Control Act did was to allow for the large-scale legalization of undocumented immigrants, but never put in place a control structure that would prevent the future entry of undocumented immigrants. And indeed, then what we saw was that uh, uh, the, uh, the legalization of about 2.6 million people the legal arrival of their family members, some of whom were also admitted under the amnesty as they were also living in the United States, uh, a very short decline in the undocumented population, and, there, and then a very rapid rise to roughly 12 million in the, uh, around before the advent of the recession, reflecting the weakness of these restrictionist measures. Okay, so that's the back door, and the front door uh, is uh, addressed by the 1990 Immigration uh, Act. And so 
the 19, in the 19, what's striking in a way, if one looks retrospectively at the 1986 Immigration Reform Act, Control Act, is that uh, the only employers engaged were those, uh, I mean, there's a, were those from agriculture. Uh, so in a way, uh, you know, this, in a way, it, it didn't um, accurately signal the growing immigrant presence and its dispersion throughout the U.S. economy. So the 1990 Immigration Act uh, is propelled not mainly by agricultural interests, but rather often by high-technology employers that are interested in gaining access to the high-skilled global labor force. And their initial plan was to do so by essentially reallocating categories within the overall numerical limit, put restrictions on family reunification, and while diminishing the numbers of persons who could enter uh, under the family reunification provision, replace them with the permanent entry of high-skilled workers. Right? So uh, the obvious issue there is that it poses the conflict between the two wings of the immigrationist coalition and, and threaten to, to break it. And the result, not surprisingly, is that the Immigration Act of 1990 increased the total size of the immigration, allowed immigration, increasing both opportunities for occupational migration and for family reunification. And so we have, in the short period of time, two measures that one attacks the back door, one attacks the front door, both of which are highly expansionary. Uh, and 1990, this is taking place on the eve of a major recession that is induced by downsizing from the Cold War. And what's important to to remember about this period is that, again, these are issues that are, that these are policies that lead to significant expansion, but in the face of popular opposition, we can again see there's no, uh, there is no support for whether it is increasing, I mean, increasing immigration by legalizing unauthorized immigrants and their families or by increasing opportunities for occupational migration. So the, well, these, two ish, these two expansionary eff efforts, I think, tell us that this first stage in immigration policymaking is one characterized by greater liberalism, but a, a greater liberalism that ignores the preferences of the electoral majority. All right, so things then turn around, uh, and they turn around essentially as entrepreneurial politicians discover that uh, discourse isn't quite as constrained as Gary Freeman thought. And interestingly enough, this discovery was pioneered by Pete Wilson, who was then running for re-election uh, as governor of California. And the interesting thing about Pete Wilson is that in his prior job, he, when he was senator for the United States, he, for California, he played the crucial role in uh, pushing for the agricultural amnesty, which again was an amnesty that uh, favored recent arrivals and was indeed characterized by a high level of fraud. So Wilson runs on a platform of uh, uh, basically uh, an anti-immigrant platform that uh, identifies uh, uh, migration as a, as a system that's out of control, creates, in effect, a moral panic, uh, and, and, of course, is understandably able to turn the tables because immigrants are uh, a constituency with very little uh, political 
political voice. By definition, they're out of the political, they, they are non-citizens, they lack the capacity for political voice, even when citizens, their familiarity with the, with, uh, the electoral system means that their participation is uh, diminished. So uh, we have a shift then from expansionary policies to those that involve a high level of social coercion. So the sequence, I left out Wilson's re-election effort, which is 1992, but then there is a passage of Proposition uh, 187 in, in California in 1994. So this is a referendum. It's, it's outside, the, outside the normal electoral process uh, that bar, would have barred undocumented immigrants from uh, a variety of different services. In the end, it was ruled unconstitutional, so it had no practical impact, but it had a very powerful a symbolic and signaling effect. And, and what it did was to tell Washington that indeed the tide of opinion had turned and that there were political gains to be made by, uh, by putting in place restrictive measures. Now it's important to remember that 1994 is the, the Republican takeover of the House and that in the mid-1990s also has Bill Clinton in the White House, but Clinton is highly dependent and thinking about his re-election, highly dependent on votes from California, which just had just elected an anti-immigrant politician. So mid-1990s, the passage of two very restrictionist uh, pieces of legislation, the Illegal Immigration Reform and Responsibility Act, uh, a, uh, a, another act related to welfare reform, but both of those very significantly increased uh, uh, increased resources available to border uh, residents. For the very first time, they made legal uh, permanent immigrants uh, vulnerable to, uh, to enforcement. So we have a shift then from uh, an ex expansionary liberalism to more democratic but illiberal measures. And that then puts in place a uh, reactive cycle in which the uh, restrictionists uh, either propose or put in place measures that are designed to control immigration, and this then produces a variety of responses that seek to either offset the impact of res these restrictionist policies or to prevent them. So uh, one of the, in a way, natural reactions to the restriction on the rights of immigrants is to become a citizen. And you can see here that there is a rapid rise, so the, the amnesty, oh, sorry, the amnesty occurs in past 1986. It's implemented between 1988 and 1991. There's a five-year period uh, of uh, residence required before eligibility for naturalization. We see a big increase in naturalization. And then we see subsequent increases in naturalization, some of which are, uh, are uh, affected by changes in the cost associated with naturalization. But clearly, there's a response on the part of immigrants, that they are indeed receiving the signals. This is a much more restrictive political environment. Our rights are being threatened, and the way to kind of uh, uh, reinforce our personal liberties is to ensure that we acquire citizenship. Uh, so um, in the mid-2000s, the Republicans are still in control of, of the House. This is under Bush. Uh, and they pass a very, uh, very restrictionist measure prohibiting aid to undocumented immigrants. It would have uh, imposed steep penalties both on the employers of immigrants, but also on persons who, who provided other forms of aid, such as simply providing lodging to undocumented immigrants. So this was seen as a very, perceived as a very threatening 
uh, measure and, and the response is what you see in the picture, namely hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating in Los Angeles and these were demonstrations that were then followed, uh, that, that were then duplicated throughout the United States and one of the striking things I believe about these demonstrations is the fact that uh, they occurred not simply uh, in the typical suspect places of New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, or Chicago, but in fact occurred in smaller places all over the country. And so on the one hand then, these are, they, were, they were successful in that this particular measure was beaten back, but they were unsuccessful in the sense that the effect was to signal to the broader American public that immigrants are everywhere, and as the immigrants themselves chanted, and what I thought was particularly striking, uh, we're here, we're not going back. And so if you think about the, the kind of tip of these, are, especially if you think about Mexican migration, which had always had a very high circular component, that chant told us that the migration had taken a very different direction, that this had become a migration of settlement, and as the immigrants came to the realization that were settling down, of course, they had a search for greater rights. Uh, and so we can see the impact of this reactive cycle. So if you look, I mean, clearly these are questions, what do you think is the most important problem facing this country today? So if we look at the responses from 1994 to 2006, you see in a way confirmation of, of Freeman's point. That is the broader public is not paying much attention. Well, that changes after 2006 and we see immediately follow, more or less coinciding with these uh, demonstrations that 19% of the public says that immigration is the most important issue, and though there, you know, it declined, nonetheless, uh, there, there are very significant fluctuations. So what this reactive cycle has done has been to mobilize both sides and to signal, I mean, we often talk about the Latino population as a sleeping giant of American politics, but in a way you could turn it around and you could say that white restrictionists are the sleeping, had been the sleeping giant of American politics, and it was precisely uh, the, mobilization of immigrants that woke up that giant and in effect told them that something dramatic was going to happen if indeed you didn't act. Uh, so the, uh, as stalemate takes place uh, at the national level, the politics of immigration uh, uh, filtered down to local and state levels. And so states and localities try to find a variety of ways of responding to immigration, whether uh, expansively, as in the case of California, where, uh, uh, for example, undocumented uh, college-age students were uh, allowed to attend uh, California universities, paying the same tuition as in-state residents, but alternatively, in a place like Arizona, with the, where the immigrant population had risen very, very rapidly, which then imposes a harsh, harshly restrictionist legislation that would have made uh, the failure to carry immigration papers a misdemeanor would have allowed police to detain possible unauthorized migrants and verify their status. Although, of course, the question is, well, how do you know that somebody is, a, is possibly an unauthorized uh, migrant? And the critics of the law said, uh, argued that, of course, uh, this was, would be a process of stopping people for driving because they're Mexican. Um, so, 
And here's just some examples of the response to this. So uh, a, in the cartoon on the left, the white person saying to a black person, go back to Africa, to a, someone visibly who seems maybe Mexican, go back to Mexico, what to say to the Native American. The right, I'm Mexican, pull me over. On the bottom left, uh, in Spanish, there are no, service, no services for gringos from Arizona. And then on the right, a bunch of police officers trying to measure the skin color of the, uh, of the driver. So then we get, uh, we get to the Obama years in 2008, and Obama uh, is elected with the hope and the assumption that finally he's going to bring an end to the stalemate. Uh, but uh, the Obama years, in addition to all of the other conflicts that he encountered, were years in which, in this tussle between the restrictionists and the expansionists, the restrictionists had the advantage in large measure because their policy preferences were simple, namely, just enforce the law. Uh, and I mean, we can see this, for example, in some of the changes that Trump has just put in place. He's basically just changed, he's changed the orders given to immigration agents of immigration custom enforcement. Now he said, you can deport any undocumented immigrant you find. So no, he doesn't need legislation, doesn't need to issue a federal regulation. The word can simply go out from Washington. You simply enforce the laws that are already on the books. So, in this, and whereas the expansionary legislation agenda was much more complicated, involving what, was, what has been called comprehensive immigration reform, which would have meant both changing backdoor and frontdoor policies. And so the complexities of that made it very difficult to assemble a productive, uh, a productive uh, coalition. So stalemate, as I've already described, had a boomerang effect. On the one hand, it led to greater mobilization of immigrant advocates, but as immigrant advocates mobilized, this, of course, increased the visibility of uh, immigration. And the rea underlying social reality was one in which immigration continued to grow. So the immigrant population uh, doubled between 1990 and 2016. So I think as of the latest figures, there are 43 million foreign-born persons living in the United States, bringing it to about 13% of the total population. You can double that for the children of immigrants. Uh, and, and what has happened in that process is also the, the immigrant population has dispersed. So whereas in, let's say, even in the mid-1980s, immigrants were found in a small number of states, at the moment they're found everywhere. And I think the best illustration of that is the fact that the Mexican consulate has opened up a consular office in Alaska, right, which is about, just about as far from the Mexican border as one would think. And indeed, they're Mexican immigrants. Uh, I mean, there are plenty of Mexican immigrants working in agriculture in, uh, in New England. So the politics of, of immigration has increased the salience of the issue, but the, but the underlying social transformation has brought this phenomenon much closer to the rest of the population. So despite all of the restrictionist measures that were put in place from the 1990s on, despite the fact that Obama, both first Bush and then Obama, increased the level of deportation to roughly 400,000 people a year, and Obama was lambasted for being the porter-in-chief, nonetheless, the undocumented population never declined. So we know from 2009 there's no further growth, but if one is sending away 400,000 people every year and the population isn't declining, that means that people are finding other ways to enter and remain unauthorized. American uh, citizenship has historically been very easy to acquire, and in large measure, 
this reflects the early conditions under which what became the United States was settled. After all, uh, this was a huge geographic space. It was controlled by the, its indigenous inhabitants. There were uh, empires that were contending for the same space. So when the United States emerged as a new republic, it needs to do something to encourage immigrants to arrive and, and both build a new nation and control the space. And, and it's, so it's that imperative that, make, that builds an immigration policy that on the one hand makes it relatively easy for immigrants to obtain citizenship, also provides for birthright citizenship for the children of immigrants. And this then meant that immigrants quickly entered, immigrants and descendants entered the, the polity, and that then forced con the contending parties, uh, initially Whigs Democrats, later on Whigs and Republicans, to fight with one another for the immigrant vote. And so I think it's that electoral competition fed by the feedback from immigration to immigration policy that explains why it is that severe opposition to immigration arises in the middle of the 19th century, but it takes until the middle of the 1920s for immigration to Europe to be, uh, to be controlled. So one would think, well, something similar would happen in this current period, given the large increase in, in immigration. Uh, and indeed, of course, that's really the assumption behind the Republican autopsy report. His, the historical pattern is going to recur. Immigrants are going, and their descendants are going to enter the polity. And if we ignore them, they're all going to move into the opposing camp. Uh, and what forestalled, I think, the implementation of the Republican autopsy plan is the fact that up until 2016, and now continuing since then, Republican uh, political entrepreneurs had successfully used immigration as a lever to turn white Democrats into Republicans. Uh, and as they did this, of course, there was a reaction from the other side. That is, immigrants, particularly Latino immigrants, were increasingly likely to be Democrats. And as the growth of Latino population produced a growing number of Latino elected politicians, those elected officials were also likely to become Democrats. And just as the Republicans used immigration as a way to turn white Democrats into Republicans, Democrats came to use immigration as a mobilizing uh, tactic. So if one looked, or in preparation for this talk, I took a look at the political platforms from 2008 and 2016. And what's striking about the 2008 plat Republican platform is how friendly the Republicans were to immigration. I mean, they're even talking this in this we need to show our appreciation for immigrants, and immigrants, even those who are non-citizens, make an important contribution to America. So, I mean, so in the space of eight years, uh, uh, the Republicans turned their policy, policies totally around. So Trump's, I mean, so what I've tried to explain is why is it that immigration uh, emerges almost everywhere as a crucial source of political conflict? Why is it that uh, it, provided a, uh, an opportunity at this point in time for a political figure to use immigration uh, as the uh, catapult to, uh, to first the nomination and then the election. But there was a crucial gamble that, uh, uh, that uh, Trump uh, was willing to take. And namely, uh, could he uh, eke out a victory uh, by relying solely on white voters. And I think that the, the bulk of the 
social scientists, the, the, the conventional wisdom would have told him no. Uh, but indeed, we've, what we discovered is that uh, this, this strategy worked, albeit uh, as facilitated by, uh, by the peculiarities of the American electoral system. Okay, so what I've tried to do so far is to explain why it is that, as I said, immigration emerged as a political source, central political cleavage, uh, why it took its prominence at this particular time, and what was the nature of the, uh, 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 of the choice that Trump and, of course, the Democratic candidate faced. So after writing this paper, then uh, uh, the American National Election Survey was released, and I thought, okay, well, I should try to see, is there, it, can I see whether reality indeed corresponds to my, my description of the scenario? So for those of you who don't know, the American National Election Study is essentially the, the workhorse of, uh, key workhorse for the study of American elections. It's been going on for several decades and involves uh, this, the most recent round of face-to-face -face survey and an internet survey. There's a pre-election component and then a post-election uh, interviews. Uh, a very large sample both in the pre, of, of persons uh, interviewed pre and post. And I focused only on white respondents. And I looked at their views on four different questions. Do you favor, oppose, or neither favor, nor oppose, build a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border, end birthright citizenship for children of unauthorized immigrants, allow Syrian refugees to come to the United States, and then last, a question about unauthorized immigrants. Make all unauthorized immigrants felons. Have a guest worker program in order to work. Allow to remain and eventually qualify for US citizenship if they meet conditions. And then allow to remain and qualify for US citizenship without penalties. OK, so what we can see is indeed uh, views on these issues clearly diverged between Trump and Clinton voters. Uh, the, single largest cleavage actually turns out to be the, on the right, the policy, the path, views towards the path to citizenship. Uh, uh, b of course, building the wall also is a very large source of cleavage. Uh, views towards Syrian refugees, there's also a very significant gap, but in, uh, less, I suppose, than I would have imagined. Okay, so then I ran a series of uh, logistic regressions predicting, uh, using the pre-election responses to predict the Trump vote. Uh, so the first uh, model is no controls. The second, a series of demographic controls. The third, uh, their religion. And there's a question about how many guns do you possess? And there's a significant number of, say, more than seven. Uh, <laughs> then how much attention you pay for media. Uh, then who they voted for in 2012, whether they voted for Obama or they didn't vote, uh, with voted for Romney, the, the omitted category, and then partisan loyalty. And then last, uh, a question about attitudes towards, uh, attitudes towards blacks. So what, what, what the respondents' view was towards government policies designed to reduce poverty among blacks. Okay, so what we can see is that um, views towards building the wall and favoring building the wall, opposition to the admission of Syrian refugees, all very powerful factors uh, uh, affecting the vote for Trump. Uh, views about path to citizenship, people who favored that were less likely to 
uh, to vote for Trump. Once I, so of course, partisan loyalty is a very powerful factor. So once I introduce partisan loyalty in 2012 vote, we see that these coefficients diminish quite a bit in size, but nonetheless retain significance. Um, interesting enough, when I introduce the attitudes towards blacks, there is almost no effect. All right, so what is this all, I mean, uh, what, what's, the, uh, what's the impact of uh, these attitudes on the vote? So we can see that uh, the attitude with the greatest, the pre preference with the greatest impact has to do with building the wall, so roughly six percentage point difference. Uh, views towards Syrian refugees, a four, point, a four percentage point difference, and then view towards birthright citizenship a two percentage point difference. So we do, I think what's significant about these, I mean, substantively significant about these results is that we see that even if we control for partisan loyalty, prior political behavior, views towards blacks, nonetheless, views on these immigration measures turns out to be, turn out to be important. So to conclude, uh, I refer back to the National Academy report uh, in which they contend immigrants experience change once they arrive and native-born Americans change in response to immigration. That's certainly true. But I think what the National Academy was, did not see, and I think in a way was unwilling to see, is that immigrants and the native-born population changed in very different ways. That immigration produced international integration, but that international integration was precisely what significant elements of the native-born population didn't want. And so consequently, uh, that conflict between international integration on the one hand and a preference for migration control policies that would, in effect, weaken, disintegrate the U.S. from the broader global economy uh, made immigration, uh, in effect, a source of national disintegration and put it at the center of American politics in 2016. So thank you very much. Okay. All right. We have time for questions. Yes. So going back to your sort of like how you started, yes. right? That we started and said, um, well, we shouldn't be, you know, why we shouldn't be surprised, yes. right? Well, that's the last one. Immigration. Um, but I mean, all everything you presented here, right, still doesn't answer maybe the question of, I mean. Remember, you talked about the consensus among Republicans, right? That we should change the record, right? We should, you know, talk differently, right? And here comes someone who talks very strongly about so like immigration and manages to. And so, I'm still not sure how how that all works together, right? So, like, um, I'm I'm sure I'm still not sure how this actually um, explains well, the final result. I, I mean, Okay, but remember, in a way, I mean, I should have said at the beginning, you know, my goal is actually, was not to explain the election. I mean, you know, we, the, I mean, was it Comey? Was it the Russians? Was it the fact that, you know, Clinton gave those $250,000 speeches to Goldman Sachs? I mean, there are a whole set of imponderables. Uh, and, and uh, you know, clearly, you know, 85,000 votes cast for Democrats would have changed the entire result. So I think, that the, but I think that I still could have written this paper had Trump lost because what he did was to make put immigration at the center of the political debate, and 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 
In doing so, obviously, he took a gamble. That's right. I mean, the, that is the, the, the wise, you know, the, right. the, the establishment said, you're crazy. And this is a way, I mean, you know, looking backwards, I think one could say Pete Wilson in 1992 successfully got himself reelected as governor of California. In the process, he killed the Republic, California Republican Party. Remember, which had sent us Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan. I mean, Orange County was a bastion of hardcore, the John Birch Society. Orange County now votes Democratic, right? So, I mean, I think the conventional wisdom was, you're pulling another Pete Wilson, and you'll kill us. So, I mean, okay, we're not talking about a very rational person, right? So that's not, data don't count for this guy. He took a gamble, uh, and because of the peculiarities of the American electoral system, that gamble led to victory. But had it not, even had it not led to victory, millions and millions of people would have voted for him. And I think that's really what I'm trying to explain. Yes? What do you think that this says about the difference between the Republican establishment and the Republican voter base? Uh, the people that are, are inclined to vote for Republicans. Like if, well, if the establishment puts out this... this I, I mean, there was a paper, there was a paper that was written by Sean Trent, who's an analyst for Real Clear Politics, who made the argument, I don't know, 2013, 2014, well, maybe there's still a campaign when we can win with whites only. So, I mean, it wasn't totally crazy what Trump did. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, it's the, the, the difference, I think, between the rank and file Republican and the Republican establishment is the Republican establishment, some, I mean, the reasonable parts of it are looking forward and they're asking themselves, what are the consequences of what we do today for 2020, 2024, et cetera? So that's, uh, I mean, and, and in a way, you know, Trump's strategy reflects the pressures they're under, right? I mean, the immediate gain is make everybody mad, but, you know, just as with Pete Wilson, that could work in the short term, but is likely to have long-term negative results. Yes? So as far as I understand your question, you want to answer the question, why have sociologists or immigration researchers missed this, yes. right? And so your answer is because you haven't looked at the political struggles that were brewing on the immigration issue that brought the immigration issue you know, to become more salient over time. Is, no, is that how no, no, no. The answer is that immigration. I mean, answer is that immigrate. What international migration is an inherently political, political issue, and it for liberal democracies, it's an impossible, unresolvable issue. Because I mean, the core question that we're confronted with is, on the one hand, I mean, this is classic conflict between freedom and and community. I mean, what, what is it that the immigrants are doing? The immigrants are, do I mean, we all recognize that there's a right to free movement. But that right to free movement stops at the border. So all of the immigrants, I mean, the immigrants are acting the way everyone else does. They're, they're you know, trying to get ahead based on their efforts, and, and there's a border that's blocking them. That's clearly unjust. It's clearly unfair. Yeah. We can't have a political community without borders. Mm -hmm. If we don't, I mean, I assume almost everyone in this room leans towards the left, and so what that means is that everyone in this room has a particular view about what we should do for the rest of the community. Well, that we implies borders. Can't be everybody. So I think that's, point is that these are, this is an, international migration generates conflicts of these types, and these conflicts are different, uh, are, are distinctive from 
the conflicts that preceded them. This is not a repetition of the civil rights conflict. This is not, I mean, uh, this, the, you know, if we think about the, the civil rights movement, the civil rights movement was about equality among Americans. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about ease of a the access of foreigners to the national territory and the conditions under which, if they have access, they're allowed into the community. So that's, that's the core of my point, that, that this is a, this is so, I mean, what the sociologists get right, I think, is that, I, I mean, what the economists get right is migration is good for the migrants. They're very, especially, moving from a poor to a rich country, moving from a dysfunctional political system to a more functional, this is excellent for the migrants, their children, even for the people at home. So it's a highly rational thing to do. As migration develops, the migrants and their communities increase their ability to benefit from the disparity between here and there. Yeah. Right? Migration thus develops a, a momentum. And more of the immigrants aren't an isolated community. The immigrants are well, their neighbors, their friends, their co-workers, their partners. And, and so what migration control entails is on the one hand saying to our neighbors, friends, co-workers, no, you can't bring more of your family in, and you know, maybe we'll throw you out. I mean, so once, it, once you have migration control, then you have deportation. There's no other way around it. So that's my point. But this is, a, this is an impossible conflict for liberal democracies. And then there are the particularities of the American political process that led us to where we are. But what's the implication for the social sciences, I guess is my point. Like, what should we have studied or should study in order to, to get at this new uh, type of conflict that you're describing? I, which yes. I thought is your original question in a way, that how can we contribute or how can we have missed this new level of conflict? And so I, I wanted you to direct your attention a little bit more to that. I mean, I think one thing that you left out yes. of your introduction slide is that we are also studying a lot how both societies react to immigration. And, and that, that we already notice that kind of resistance. There's a lot of research in social capital literature on the negative effects of diversity on social cohesion, uh, which is sometimes shouted down and, and so on. But so, so there were already indications in our research of this growing crisis. So I guess my question to you is, what should we do in order to address this, in a way, to address this new level crisis? I mean, where should the research be directed? All right, to be clear, I know this is I don't have question. an answer. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the best answer okay. I can come up with at the moment. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak about the uh, process of assimilation between the migrant community, in the migrant community, uh, towards uh, the host community um, that explains uh, voting for Trump to the Hispanics. Well, okay. I mean, so there, there is a, you know, there, there is a dispute as to what proportion of Latinos voted for Trump. So, I think that national exit polls show that thirty percent, something like this. And then uh, there, are, there are two political scientists, both of whom have to be happen to be at UCLA now, Gary Segura and Matt Barreto, who run a consulting firm, Latino Decisions, that worked for the Clinton campaign and. They maintain, as have other social scientists, that in fact in exit polls for reasons related to the way in which they're conducted, underestimated the vote for Clinton. 
All right, but let's even assume 28%. Uh, I mean, I think one, you know, the paper that I would have presented had this, this uh, topic not, not drawn itself to my attention would have been a paper on the Americanization of immigrants and their descendants. And I mean, what we forget, if we're focused as, you know, National Academy says, you know, let's look at how do the, how do the immigrants become like, like uh, members of the native society? Well, they become Americans. So they come to share the prevailing view, which is that borders ought to be controlled. I mean, so uh, the, the data that, uh, the, the graph that I showed you about views towards immigration comes from the International Social Survey Program. So turns out these, unfortunately, they didn't survey, it wasn't done in Canada, but it was done in Mexico. So if you look at the views of Mexicans towards migration, even though there's very little migration, the Mexicans are more restrictionist than are the Americans. If you then look at the views of Mexican immigrants, they're much, they're, they're not you know, overwhelmingly in favor of open borders, but they're much more likely to favor expansion. But then as you go up generations, they're increasingly restricted. Now, you know, third generation Mexicans are not as restrictive as native whites, but they're a hell of a lot more restrictive than, uh, than the first generation. So what you see is, I mean, I think the relevance of the comparison Mexicans in Mexico to third generation Mexicans in the United States is we're seeing the process by which immigrants become nationalists. Part of, part of the, I mean, so this is, I, I mean, I guess I, I don't have an agenda at the moment how to go past this paper, but, but it seems to me that, you know, argument I'm making is that part of, part of national identity is indeed believing that the political, the, ba the, the boundaries around the political community need to be, need to be controlled. And, and of course that produces I, that produces highly illiberal measures that are very difficult for people like us to, to, to stomach. But I think it's that process of nationalization that explains, you know, provides the answer to the question. Yes. Um, so as you, the, the part of your title of your talk is, uh, you know, why we, we should have seen this coming or why we shouldn't have been right. surprised. And uh, your answer, you started off your talk saying how your major critiques of the sociology of migration was that it's focused uh, mainly on domestic dynamics. And your own explanation to your own question is also very focused on domestic dynamics, uh, okay. along yes. as there is, we shouldn't be surprised because this is the outcome of right. long-term domestic political evolution in response to partisan yes. responses right. to immigration, yes. uh, using Freeman as a, as a framework. And so I was wondering, so why, why Freeman and not Zolberg, which would allow you to add an international dimension to the Freeman framework? Is he, you know, Zolberg in his later work in the 90s takes, takes Freeman's interest politics and then puts it in an international context, saying that one of the things that states look into when they're, when they're trying to create policies is not just balancing the cultural conflict and the economic conflict within their own borders, but also um, bringing into the mix the need to maximize votes, as you say, and to pay attention to their standing on the political stage. And for me, the interesting thing about Trump, when you say that he, he took a political, domestic political gamble, the interesting thing for me is he also took, I think, an interesting international political gamble. Because uh, if, you, if you take the Zolbergian international perspective, this anti-populist norm also has an international di dimension in, in the context of which the US since World War II has been on the world stage as a protector of rights, as the, as the cowboy with the white hat. Right? And it, whatever has been going on domestically, I, I think it's plausible to say that any American president you know, responding to these domestic politics would at least have been restricted in the international anti-populist norm, knowing that at once 
he enters the political, she enters the political arena outside, the US is still expected to be that person, the guy in the white hat. So really, it's the, 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 the shocking thing for me about Trump is that he, he threw that norm out the window, the, the international dimension. I see. I mean, I thought you were going to push me in a different direction, um, and, uh, and 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 okay, I'll tell you what it is. But basically, this is I, this is omitted because really, really for reasons of time, and and that is, uh, I mean, one one of our, one of the distinctive characteristics of international migration. I think again, this is what the sociology of migration uh, misses: is that this is an international phenomenon. That is, so that I mean. The sociology of migration, and I think the economics is, uh, you know, people, migration is good for the migrants. This is so they're 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 using their own resources to make their lives better. Uh, you know, that's often true. But on the other hand, we are witnessing political, and we have witnessed political efforts that compel to people to leave. Uh, and so, and these are these are events that are. Unpredictable, right? They, I mean, we can we we're pretty confident things like this are going to happen, but we don't know when they're going to happen, where they're going to happen, and so I mean, this raises general questions of the capacity of states to control their borders, uh, but you know, it also increases the salience of the kind of foreign aspect of these migrations. Uh, I mean, and then you know, it, the the. Migration has been seen, international migration has been seen as a threat because of its foreignness. These are the importation of foreign ideas. I mean, these are the, uh, there's always been a great concern about the health of immigrants. So, I mean, what did we, I mean, Ellis Island was essentially a health inspection station. Uh, I mean, if you look at pictures of the Bracero, the Bracero program, which was a kind of guest worker program for Mexican immigrants, they would spray the braceros with DDT as they entered. Uh, well, we had Zika, we had Ebola, so I mean there are a series of, and of course all of the, the uh, I mean there's so a series of different, different epidemics, all of which created so much apprehension in the American public precisely because they could be imported by people. So I think that it's, again, that's what the, you know, the sociology, I think social science is focus largely on the kind of, uh, you know, deeply embedded, uh, long-standing processes. But there are things that happen all of a sudden that have a very powerful effect. They're inescapable. Yes. yes. Um, am I summarizing your argument uh, properly if I say that um, if you have a combination, there's always a, a reservoir of resentment of newcomers, it's just there. A certain uh, uh, number that are significant enough to have a major impact on the political system. Um, if you have large waves of immigrants, um, sooner or later, political entrepreneurs will be a, will will recognize that reservoir and tap into it. Right? That's a that to me sounds like a an an inappropriately general theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and the reason is because I'm thinking, of course, of all the comparative cases, yes. right? Holland, France, Denmark sound like they fit. Yeah. Spain doesn't fit at all. Yeah. Canada doesn't yeah. fit at all, yeah. right? Yeah. So there are different circumstances under yes. which this reservoir apparently yes. doesn't get tapped. Yeah. Um, what can we say well, about Okay, so yeah, th that, I mean, that's a very valid 
Oh, can I continue? Yeah, yeah. no, one second. I think since the beer has arrived, we'll take maybe the last round of questions and then you'll respond okay. to all of them. Is that okay? Uh, right, right. So it requires me to, to, you know, to do a lot of thinking. Okay. <laughs> but let me try to respond to this first, okay? Um, yeah, okay, so look, I, I mean, I, you know, this, is, this is too general. And, and, uh, and you know, to, uh, to be more convincing and more thorough, I obviously have to, have to consider a variety of other, other cases. But let me say something about these cases. Because, um, so, I mean, you know, Freeman's argument was that, yes, there's that underlying, there's that underlying uh, opposition, but political entrepreneurs are constrained, okay, so that there's this anti-populist norm. It seems to me that, that, that tells us a lot about Spain and Portugal, right? I mean, that is that Spain, there is the enduring impact of Francoism. And so there is no extreme right in Spain. Uh, and, uh, and I, I think that the, the, the kind of the impact of Francoism, uh, the ways in which the transition affected Spanish political culture basically inoculated them against a Le Pen or a Trump. I think the same is true in Portugal. Uh, I mean, there I think it has to do more with the particularities of the migration. In Canada, I think the, the my, I mean, again, this is you know off the top of my head. I, the, I mean, Canada, it, in part because of the nature of the political system, because of the centrality of immigration uh, to broader political and economic strategies, Canada has a very controlled migration. Right? So I mean. It, it, you know, usually, I mean, people look at the Canadian system as a model. You know, this is how we order model. But, but you could turn it upside down and you could say, well, from the standpoint of the immigrants, it's much, U.S. is much better. I mean, in effect, the U.S. allows the immigrants to self-integrate, right? Come on in. I mean, you, we're not going to give you a lot of benefits, but, you know, we'll accept peasants who are willing to be dishwashers. Very hard in Canada. So well, that's the Spanish model, though. Interestingly enough, the Spanish model is the least control. I, I just happened to yes. be involved in writing a little paper yes. on, on migration policy yes. between uh, comparing Spain and uh, Germany and, and Canada. I see. And my Spanish colleagues tell yes. me that there is a, a remarkable parallel with what you were just describing. You have these basically totally open borders. Yes. And then. From time to time, amnesties, yes. general amnesties, yes. which of course only encourages more people to come in, right? right? And so they have essentially had a completely liberal, open uh, uh, set of policies, uh, so and yet it has not become an issue. And you may be right that that's because of the Franco effect. It could be. I mean, you know, Spain, you could say, is the best of all possible worlds for, for immigrants, right? Yes, they're, easy all, to get in. they're all but, low skill and all. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. they don't. Uh, okay, so I mean, I think that's. Uh, I mean, I think you know, the Canada has. Canada has uh, has controlled its immigration in a much time. I mean, the, you know, the United States is a polity in which you know society penetrates very deeply into the state. And I, the best example of societal penetration is migration policy. I mean, again, you compare. Look, Canada has a separate ministry, right? Immigration, citizen, refugees. I mean, you know, immigration has always been a stepchild. It's in somewhere else, right? So the capacity. I mean, I think that the the capacity of the state to control the phenomenon is related, you know, has an impact on the, on the way in which the phenomenon produces a political response. So, uh, I mean, you know, we have the usual problem, too few cases, too many variables, but, but I, I mean, I, I think that 
there, I think we can at least begin to explore what might be the sources of the variations in the, in the conflicts generated by immigration. Yes. Um, I'd like to, so thank you very much. Um, I put your uh, talk in light with um, the talk of some, uh, another professor at Yale, Francois Cripeau. He's a UN expert on uh, human rights and yeah. um, So his main argument and what he's advocating for is to stop resisting migration and to, to try and actually um, not control it but direct it. So he's bringing another nuance in the idea of control of migration. Um, and he's, he's referring to the waves of migration in the 50s and the 60s, when people from North Africa could come to uh, Europe on a ferry with 50 centimes, or 50 francs, which is not the case anymore. Because of, of that being gone, now we have the smuggling and all that market. So I would like to have your take on this idea of control that is more nuanced. Um, yeah. I have another question for you. It's not the, um, because you talked about the circular migration between Mexico and, and, and the U.S. And uh, recently I was talking to, uh, to a person from Puebla mm -hmm. who was telling me that they are facing a huge crisis uh, because of the deportation. Yes. And that she yes. was telling me about them, she was like, but they don't speak the same language. Yes, correct. So these are Latinos yes. who yes, are yes, coming yes, back yes, yes, yes. and it's, it's an right. immense refugee yes. crisis. Yes. Okay, so I mean the first uh, question, uh, I mean, you know, academics and specialists are trying to think about uh, alternatives to, you know, the current system of migration control and the various, so, I mean, one, you know, question we can all ask ourselves is, should we, uh, should we forget about citizenship? Should we basically install a Persian Gulf system? Wouldn't that be better for the developing world if, you know, Canada, the United States, France, etc increase the number of people who could stay here for a temporary period, but nonetheless, you know, benefit from conditions, send money home, get skills, and go away again. Yeah. I mean, that, I don't think our societies will stand for that, but, but that is an alternative. Uh, now, that being said, I, I do think that uh, if there is comprehensive immigration from the United States, there, I mean, Canada has an expanded guest worker program, the United States has a guest worker program, I think comprehensive immigration reform will lead to a guest worker program, but I don't think any of our societies are ready for it to go to say, okay, you know, Qatar, you've got it right, we'll implement your model. But, but that is another way of thinking about it. I mean, again, I think it suggests why it is that this is so difficult an issue. I mean, that would increase freedom on one level, uh, and, but you know, it would be very difficult for us to take. Should we uh, go for some of the I mean, are there any last questions? Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm just wondering, the difference with uh, Canada and Spain and the US, maybe you're missing the national identity picture of it, like maybe it's a difference in identity um, and attitudes toward, uh, or like in the process of uh, assimilation that uh, immigrants and nationals have a different like view towards it, but then creates less of a stigma in the, in the process, and therefore, does that make well, sense? Well, I just don't see, uh, I mean, wh wh what is it about the difference between American and Canadian identity that explains why Canada has a much more controlled system than, than the US? Why is it that immigrants are selected on the basis of what, I mean, how is that related to Canadian identity? I mean, maybe that is. 
Identity that's driving these attitudes. And, and He's comparing Justin Trudeau to Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, okay, but but all right. But again, you know, we can flip it around. I mean, you know, let's say Hillary Clinton would have won. Let's say, I mean, you know, why? I don't know. October fifteenth, I'm saying to my, you know, it's out of my mind, I'm saying, well, maybe they'll be, she'll win, and there'll be Democratic majorities in both houses. <laughs> but imagine if that would have been the case. I mean, I don't think. I think yes, it would have had comprehensive immigration reform, but you know, it would have it would have made really you know Obamacare seem simple. I mean, I think it's just inherently a much more complicated. This is a much more complicated issue. Uh, and um, I mean, I just come back to the other part of your question. I mean, it doesn't matter who's going to be president. There are going to be large numbers of deportations. I mean, that's the. I mean, the price for the price. I mean, remember, you know, Clinton, Clinton was the one who started building the wall. Obama, mm -hmm. you know, helped expand it. The price for comprehensive immigration reform is going to be, in effect, uh, you know, there's going to be a bigger, taller wall. Maybe it won't be a concrete wall, but it will be increasingly difficult for people to come in without authorization, increasingly difficult for people to come in and find a job. So that's the, I mean, I think the policy, you know, that is, it's much easier to accept one's friends, neighbors, co-workers, partners. That's, who the, that's the immigrants around us. But foreigners in foreign places, it's much easier to keep them out. And so the price for, for being more accepting is, I think, more exclusion. Mm -hmm. All right. That's a good <laughs>